glad that we can gather together and uh, I hope that many of you stayed home. I encourage some to stay home. Thank you to all of you that weathered the uh, weather and got, got in here today. It was, uh, we had a blast on Friday with our grandkids making snowmen and we're uh, texting our family in Florida, see how good it is to be in Illinois. And then this morning I texted Sub-Zero, see how good it is to be in Florida. So we get the best of both worlds, don't we? So it is a pleasure to be together, and, uh, and this isn't so bad. We're in a warm room together and, and uh, have the warmth of the love of God to share. Uh, we are going to continue our series in Hebrews with our first passage that is a warning and an exhortation, Hebrews 2, 1-4, and continuing our theme of being anchored in Christ. Today I want to draw our attention to uh, the ocean. I have a I've had a ton of fun playing in the waves. I'm a guy that when he goes to the ocean, I don't like sitting on the beach for too long. I don't like sitting for too long. I'm either going to walk on the beach or I want to get in the waves. And I've had a lot of fun playing in the waves. And I'd say my limit is about six feet for wave height that I can feel comfortable playing in. But it's funny that waves are like six feet is about right on the edge. Have you ever been out in the waves and it's been right on the edge of what you feel comfortable with? Uh, it's, it's great when you hit a wave perfect. When you hit a wave perfect, you get it just before it's curling, and if you get on that wave, it will carry you all the way into shore. It'll carry you past the undertow, past, it takes you all the way in, and it is like your body surfing, it is so much fun. Uh, when you miss a wave, it picks you up and drives you into the ground, which isn't very fun when they're big. Um, so, that's going to be kind of our illustration through this sermon. The first part of it that I want you to notice is if you've ever been out in the ocean and you're playing in the waves, it feels like the current is back and forth only. But if you just out, are out there playing in the water, it doesn't take long before you're 100 yards further down the beach than you started. Like all of a sudden, you're, you can't even see where your family is. You've been playing in the waves and you don't realize there's another current that's carrying you either south or north or something like that and you're playing in the waves and without even noticing, you're so much further from home than you ever imagined. That's the first picture from this illustration I want you to see about drifting. The warning is, in this passage, is against drifting in your faith. That there are people that we're going to see in Scripture and sometimes in our own lives that we're going to find ourselves in a place where we're going to say, how did I get this far from Jesus? How did I get this far from my family? How did I get this far from walking with God? What happened? What, how did I get into this broken relationship with my kids? How did I get into this broken relationship with my neighbors? How did I get into this? When did this happen? It's a drift. It's a drift that you don't even feel at times, and all of a sudden through the current that you're in, you find yourself in a place that you never imagined. I have the privilege of, of doing premarital counseling for couples. And premarital counseling is like trying to tell people about what is going to be, and they can't even imagine it at that point. 
They're just in love. They think everything that their husband or wife-to-be says is like the most precious thing that's ever said. And then a few years later, I talk to them, and everything that they say is annoying, right? That's exaggerative, but not always. How did, what happened? Where was the drift? That drift that was being warned against is something that we see in our relationship with God, that we have to be always careful and wary about drifting away in our faith. Now, Hebrews um, is going to challenge us. It's going to challenge our understanding. We have to keep in mind Romans. We have to keep in mind the whole view. By the time we get to Hebrews 12, we're going to see there are two camps that are being dealt with. In Hebrews 12, there are those sons and daughters in faith who are going to be disciplined. They are saved and they've been saved from the beginning. And no matter how far they've drifted, they are in good standing with God. But they're going to be disciplined because they drifted. And we should be afraid. And by we get time we get to the end of Hebrews 12, we're going to find that there are some that drifted and were never saved. And the warning that's in Hebrews is to stop playing, stop pretending, stop acting like you're saved and that you've trusted Jesus Christ. The balance of handling these two is found in its conclusion. And you're going to hear this throughout Hebrews. The conclusion is put your trust in Jesus. Anchor your life in Christ. The conclusion of both of these is the same. Stop playing around and return to Christ. Return home. Stop drifting. So let's read the passage together and dig into God's word. And by digging in God's word, already we're on our way to returning to Christ, returning home. So read with me in Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great a salvation, such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Here ends the reading of God's word. We are charged this morning with not drifting away from Jesus. Return home. If you've been like me and have played in the ocean, what's the job when you find yourself 100 yards from your family, from your towel, from your chair, from your cooler? You move back towards your stuff. You don't keep drifting. And I can tell you from the stories in the Bible, everyone here has drifted in their faith. Everyone has struggled with their faith. Everyone has found themselves further from Christ than they imagined. But the charge begins, therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. Pay attention to the word of God. The first word there, therefore, is reminding us that this whole letter is one sermon. This whole letter is one argument. It's, we're going to find out a little bit more today who it was written to and why it was written, but this whole letter is tied to, which means when it continues the argument and we come to our first exhortation and our first warning. That's what this is. 
here in chapter two, verses one through four. Our first exhortation and our first warning. The first exhortation is, therefore, we must pay much closer attention. That therefore is tying to the argument that we've been looking at through Christmas and until now, which is that Jesus is the final revelation of God and the complete revelation of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact representation of his nature. After making purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. That is Jesus Christ, the exalted one, the one that we've put our faith in. And then the argument continues to that Jesus is far greater than the angels. And then he compares him in his kingly role and his priestly role and looks at him as this, the one who is the greater messenger. All of that to precede, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. What does it mean to pay much closer attention? The implication is, is that some of us have taken this presentation of the Word of God, this presentation of the Word of God, and we are not leaning into it as we should. We're more interested in studying and reading other things than the Word of God. And yet God has given us the Word of God, and it's our job to pay closer attention. In my lifetime, how have I paid closer attention? Usually it's in the context of community for me in memorizing scripture with somebody else, in getting together for Bible studies and talking about what we've been going through and having accountability groups. God gave us the opportunity to grow together and to encourage each other together. On Sunday mornings, we come and the Bible is the central part of our study. We don't do a sermon without looking at the Word of God. Why? Are there not great books out there that we could talk about and, and great pieces of information. No, the, the point is, is that God has revealed himself through his word, and the word of God is the central theme of what we study. We don't want to drift away. We want to pay closer attention to what we have heard. In this case, as the author of Hebrews is writing to this probably early Christian Jewish church and probably the 65 AD stage, a group of people that didn't actually meet Jesus but heard firsthand from those who had heard from Jesus. They're saying, pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Why that? Why are we to pay much closer attention to what we have heard? The, the picture is, is that the apostles have been given this gift, this understanding handed them from Jesus that was going to be put into Scripture's and assembled for us so that we would be able to study the Word. But in the first century, they didn't have the New Testament. They had the apostles' presentation. They had Sometimes they had a letter, but for the most part, they had the apostles' verbal word about what Christ had said and what Christ's death and resurrection meant. It was their job to pay closer attention to what they have heard, lest they drift away from it. I also want you to know that he's doing this in the plural. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. The picture is he's writing to a Christian church, a young Christian church, Jewish, before, 19, before A.D. 70, because they, you will find out later on in, in Hebrews 7 and Hebrews 8, there's no sense that the temple has been torn down like it will be in A.D. 70. There also testifies later on in Hebrews that no one has yet been put to death 
in this church. And if this is Roman church, like many believe, that it says that uh, in 12, 3, 4, consider whom endured such hostility against himself so that we may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. These are a group of people that have not seen martyrdom hit their church. If it was post-65 AD, when Nero's reign started bringing that persecution that brought many Christians to death, he wouldn't have written that more than likely. So it's probably before 65 AD, a Jewish group of Christians that are thinking about returning to their Judaism and leaving their Christian faith. They're drifting. They were all in. And now they find themselves saying, I don't know. You know, I talked to my parents and they're still Jewish. You know, they, maybe, maybe Jesus isn't the hope of our future. Maybe it's Moses. And what's at risk is some of these people finding out that they were never saved. Chapter 3 of Hebrews, we'll get there. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention. We, and the charge is the same for us. This is the exhortation, first one in Hebrews. Folks, friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, our job is to pay closer attention to the Word of God. Our job is to encourage each other, to study God's Word, to know God's Word, to trust Christ through God's Word. There are some churches of my childhood, I'll remember, I remember that they would carry a big Bible from the back of the church up to the front of the church, and then they would lay it at the front of the church because from their perspective, the center of the church was the Scriptures. And they would carry them in, and I, you won't find me doing that. I attended a church where I had someone come up to me because I was getting ready to preach, and I set my Bible on the floor, and he said, don't ever set your Bible on the floor. That's the Word of God. And for every time I was in that church after that, I made sure I didn't set my Bible on the floor. Both of those things, I don't think that's what this is talking about. I think those are ways that we show devotion to the Scriptures, and hopefully we learn. But really, the way that we pay much closer attention to the Word of God is to read it as if it's going to change our lives and let it change our lives. Go to God's Word. As a pastor, whenever I read a passage, I start with asking, God, what do you want me to change? I ask that before I ask, what do you want me to preach? I expect that God's Word is going to hone me and change me. I expect that I have a, a correcting that's being done every time I'm in the Word of God, a disciplining that's happening every time I'm in the Word of God. I expect that when I preach that it won't come back void. I expect that preaching the Word of God is going to change your lives, not because of the preacher, but because it's the Word of God. I may not walk down the front holding the Word of God out where you can see that I revere it. And I may not keep it off of the ground. I have lots of Bibles and I hand them out easily. But what I am is a changed man because of the Word of God. And I want to be a church of people that are changed because we paid attention to the Word that was spoken to us. The counter is that some of us, by not paying attention to the Word of God, are drifting. 
What does drifting look like? Um, If you go to the Old Testament and you look at David, like our Tuesday Bible study has been doing. The Tuesday men's Bible study has been going through 2 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel, David was kind of a rock star. He was like, he, he, it wasn't like he didn't fail. He failed, but he walked with the living God and he clung to the living God. 2 Samuel, something strange happens. Chapter 7, he gets this incredible promise of God. He has this wonderful moment where the ark is brought back, brought into Jerusalem, and he says, I'll become even more undignified than this. And then he fails. What's he doing on that rooftop looking at that girl? What's he doing hiding his sin? What's he doing hiding from the word of God? He's drifting. And what all of creation, anybody who's been a student of David, we're all screaming, no, don't do it. Wake up. Stop drifting. You see his great-grandchildren a couple times over, Asa and Jehoshaphat, both of them start very well. They are enlisted among the good kings of Judah. Both of them, father and son, Asa, father, Jehoshaphat, son of, of Asa, Both of them end poorly and don't trust God in their older years. How did they go from trusting God before they trusted in their elements of war when they're being attacked? How did did they go from that to placing their trust in another army and into other people instead of trusting God? It's this drift. It's a drift. How imperative is it that we are grounded and changed constantly by the word of God. Fighting a drift is a constant battle. It's a constantly, you don't have to go 100 yards away. You can go five yards away and adjust. Have you ever done the one foot dance out in the water? You know, anybody who knows playing in the waves when the water's up to here and you're moving back? The scriptures are the one-foot dance in the water, keeping you centered on Christ. Consider with me Peter and Saul. Peter is told that right before Jesus goes to the Last Supper, Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. Discipline. Oh, ouch. And then at the, after the Last Supper, He denies Jesus three times. How did he get there? How did Peter get to the place where he was failing? And right in the middle of it, Jesus says to him, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. An amazing moment. You don't have to bathe anymore. You are clean eternally. You are saved. Even though Jesus prophesied you're going to deny me three times. And Jesus just said, get behind me, Satan, when he tried to tell him he shouldn't die. Saul, what about Saul's drift or Judas's drift? Saul's drift was uglier. It was early. The Lord left him. Is Saul saved? Uh, We can battle that one. But he might have wanted to listen to the book of Hebrews because he was drifting 
almost from the beginning away from his faith. Almost from the beginning, he was not listening to the word of God. You can hear it in his pronouns when he talks to Samuel. says to Samuel, talk to your God on my behalf. He doesn't say talk to my God. Talk to your God. This drift left him in a place where he didn't even see Yahweh as his God anymore. I don't know if he caught that drift. He's not 100 yards away. And how about Judas? Judas, who we probably have the most clear presentation of not saved when everybody thought he was saved. Everyone, I mean, the disciples were as likely to believe they were the ones that would fail Jesus as they thought it would be Judas. Judas was given the, the, the bank. They trusted him. And yet Satan entered Judas at the end. And it was spoken of him that it would have been better off if he had never been born. What is, how dangerous is the drift? Careful. It starts with this exhortation to us to pay attention to the word of God. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. What did Satan attack in the garden? In Genesis 3.1, he said, Did God really say? If I'm quoting it exactly, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast on the field, and the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? This would have been a glorious moment for Eve to quote Scripture to quote the word of God. Let me tell you what God said. How did Jesus do battle in the wilderness? Jesus didn't, I imagine he didn't have a scroll with him reading Deuteronomy. He quoted Deuteronomy to Satan when he was tempted. Do you know the word of God? And are you being corrected by it? Stop drifting. Pay attention to the salvation of God. Look at verses 2 through 3. It says in 2 through 3, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. In this first verse, in verse 2, he uses very legal words. This, is a, uh, this author in the very beginning was thought to be Paul uh, by some that in the early church. Uh, most, uh, probably by the time of Martin Luther, had given up on the idea that Paul wrote Hebrews. It doesn't sound like Paul. It is the most uh, eloquent of the New Testament books in its writing. It is a beautifully crafted, using Greek words that, are, uh, that show that this is a very intelligent writer. And Martin Luther thought that it was Apollos, and that has probably had the most traction. Uh, it speaks of Timothy being imprisoned. And if that is the same Timothy of Paul, then he was somebody that was uh, in the same people group with Paul, maybe Luke. Some have thought it was Luke. Some have thought of it as Apollos. Apollos probably has the best. Uh, but in this, he, 
looks back to angels and he uses very lawyerly ver- words for this message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. All of that is words that would be used in a courtroom. And he talks about the angels and proving reliable. Uh, these angels who spoke, uh, the picture is from the Hebrews' perspective is that the angels were the ones who were messengers to Moses who brought the law. So the angels brought this message of the law, and now Jesus has brought it, and that brings us back to the first couple verses of chapter 1 of Hebrews, that Jesus is the greater message. He's comparing it to Moses' law and the law of love, the gospel, the law of truth, the one where Jesus, the new covenant, offers us salvation and redemption free of charge. Where Moses is offering redemption through the blood of lambs and goats and bulls, and Moses is drawing the law of the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments and such, they are offering retribution if you keep the law and continually bring sacrifices when you break the law. And he says, since the message declared by angels to Moses proved to be reliable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution. Every time there was sin, there needed to be a blood payment. There needed to be a way to make it right between you and God. And not only we'll hear the argument in chapter 7 of Hebrews, where we as people needing to offer sacrifices constantly for our sins, oops, I screwed up again, I have to go to the temple and offer a sacrifice for my failure. That's the picture. Not only did we have to do it, but the priests themselves had to do it daily. The ones who were in leadership had to keep offering sacrifices on their own behalf because of their own fickle, drifting hearts. And he's saying that every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution, but now he's going to say there's something you should be far more afraid of than that. It's found in verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. How shall we escape? The rules have changed. You can't go back to the temple and offer sacrifices for your sins. You can't earn your way to heaven. You can't earn justification for your sins. There is only one name under heaven by which we must be saved. There is only one way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That Jesus is the only answer. And if we neglect Christ, if we drift away from Christ, and we don't place our trust in Christ, and folks, there are many that have decided I'm going to get fire insurance, I'm going to say a prayer, I'm going to walk an aisle, and I'm saved forever because I've got an Old Testament or a New Testament, and in it, somebody wrote in there, you were saved on March 3rd, 1972, and your life has shown no change. I am here to warn you, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Now, please don't mishear me. The message of Hebrews is not, let's go back to working hard for our salvation. The message of Hebrews is, stop playing around and acting like faith isn't all-inclusive in our lives. 
If you place your trust in Jesus Christ, it means you've placed your trust, your whole heart. Let me compare it to marriage for a moment. If I say I'm married and I walk an aisle with Jeannie and I give her a ring and we do the exchange of rings and I spend the next 35 years acting as if I'm not married, am I married? Our relationship with God is just that. It's a relationship. It's entering into union with Christ. And the argument of Hebrews is going to lead us not to be afraid, go home, and think, maybe I did it wrong. There was some formula I missed. The argument of Hebrews is lean into your faith, come boldly into the presence of God because our great high priest has offered that. But stop playing around. Like this doesn't matter. I'm going to get saved. I'm covering my bases with that. And then I'm going to get these other things. But I'm really going to love this or that or the other. And Jesus, well, he'll always take me. He's faithful even when I'm not. And yet Jesus himself said, many will stand before me that day and say, did we not heal the sick and raise the dead? and do all kinds of miracles. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Pay attention to your salvation as if it's the most important thing in your life because your salvation is the most important thing in your life. The most important relationship you'll have is the one with Jesus Christ. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. This verse in verse 3 tells us a little bit of a clue of when this was written. This is the second generation of the church. There was the apostles and those who walked with Jesus, and these are the ones who heard from those apostles the story. It's the second generation of the church. And this second generation is thinking about leaving their faith. Well, I have to pause here. We now have our exhortation and our warning. The warning is, stop goofing around. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great a salvation? There's a balance here that is hard for me, and I have been praying to deal with it correctly. The balance is that I believe in my whole heart that my salvation is secured by the power of God through Jesus Christ. That I don't have to wake up in the morning and wonder, am I saved today? And if I'm saved today, am I going to have to wake up tomorrow and wonder if I'm still saved tomorrow? I believe in the doctrine of eternal security if we understand it correctly. So that means I believe that the one who secures my salvation from beginning to end is Jesus Christ, not me. It's not my works then, now, or in the future that will ever save me. It's not my production that will ever save me. The guy on the cross next to Jesus gets one statement of faith and he's saved, this day you'll be in paradise with me. He didn't have to put together a body of work to prove that his faith was real. I have to balance that with the argument that's in Hebrews that some people who are reading this book in that church are not yet truly saved. They just look and smell saved. 
They actually think in their own hearts that they're saved. Some are going to carry that all the way into heaven and say, look at what I did for you. And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Our job, as we consider how we stop drifting, is to rightly divide the truth of God. And my argument will always be throughout this book to bolster your faith, not tear it down. I don't want to send anyone home saying, did Todd say I'm not saved? What Todd is saying is, move towards Jesus and anchor your salvation in Christ. And if you weren't saved then, let's be saved today. Put your trust in Christ, and he will bring you home safely. I imagine I'll get a couple of questions along the way. Well, I have them too. I have taken my time to get to Hebrews, and I have worked hard on the book of Hebrews. Pay attention to the word of God. Pay attention to the salvation of God. Pay attention to the testimony of God. In verse 4 it says, While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. God has attested to us in his word. We need to move towards his word. God has given us his salvation in his son. We need to move towards that salvation. Now he tells us that God has borne witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. Is the author of Hebrews attesting to those signs and wonders that he worked in the life of Christ? Maybe. But clearly by the second half of this verse, He's referring to the miracle he's working in our church, in the church. That's the Holy Spirit distributing gifts according to his will. That means that these signs and these wonders and these miracles are happening in the context of the church also, I think. And we see those signs and miracles. Now, when I look back at my life and I look back at the works that God did, I think about that very first night when I prayed that simple childlike prayer when I was 14 years old on the side of a mountain in Colorado. And I didn't know anything was happening. I'd prayed to God many times before then. But something changed by the morning. Something miraculous happened, and, and it was happening inside of my heart. And I found that senior who I was so impressed with and I said to him, I can picture it by the river and I come up to him next to the river and I say, listen, I'm going to live for Jesus and I'm going to stop smoking weed. It's coming out of my mouth. I didn't plan it. It's coming out of my mouth. And he says to me, I think I can walk with Jesus. I think I can walk with Jesus and smoke weed at the same time. I said, okay. And I left that conversation and that night, I stood up in front of my whole youth group on this trip in Colorado and said, I'm going to live for Jesus. I had no idea what I was doing. I'm here to tell you that God was working powerfully and miraculously in a 14-year-old's life. Why would I drift? Have I not seen God work in the past? Why would I doubt? Have I, do I not have a... Mark Lachelle asked us, on the sermon right before New Year's. To have Ebenezer's in our life, things that cause us to remember the wonderful things that God has done for us, the miraculous things that God has done for us. Why do we have those things? Because they anchor us in the one who performed them, 
Jesus. We anchor our lives in this story that God himself has been testifying to and working miraculously. And he ends with, by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. That means in the context of the church, our ecclesiology, that's the study of the church, is way too small. We don't, in general, think enough about the church. We think the church is a place we go, like a gas station, and that we're going to get filled up with a gas tank, and then we can like live for seven days, maybe 14 days, and then we get, get our gas station again, and we get filled back up again. You are thinking all wrong about the church. Yes, we're filled, but we fill each other. And it's an interactive, mutual submission in the church where we're using our gifts with each other and encouraging each other. And that miracle bolsters our faith. That miracle causes us not to drift. It's your investment in me that causes me not to drift and my investment in you that causes you not to drift. And all of this is God's wonderful, miraculous story where he's given us these gifts. He's not just trying to make a machine that works. He's trying to build the body of Christ in this generation, right here. That's the church. But even churches drift and forget why we're here and forget what we're doing and complain and argue and fight over silly things like carpet colors and chandeliers. Do you have any idea who we're called to be? We are the body of Christ, the miraculous presentation of Jesus Christ on earth, declaring his word and the salvation of God so that the next generation can know. I, don't ask my granddaughter to come up and stand with me. She comes up and she holds my hand and belts out the song. And I'm like, how cool is that? She's singing those wonderful songs. And Andy, great job picking the worship this morning. They were all declarations of the confidence it found in our faith. And my granddaughter is belting it out like she means it. And I'm like, man, don't drift, girl. Don't drift. You know, there's a picture of, that I have in my mind, and I'm, I know I'm using the metaphor in different ways now, of riding a wave. A wave. Have you ever ridden a wave that carries you all the way into shore? Just like really catch it, and you're out in front of it, and you're like, it's almost like it carries you. The beginning, you have to swim with it a little bit and get your body going the same direction. I call that faith. But when that wave gets a hold of you, it carries you home without doing a thing. You just have to let it, you just have to rest. Don't try and stand up. Don't try and move. Don't try and fight it. Just let the wave do what the wave's doing. And the power behind it is exhilarating. That's what I love. I love playing in the waves and catching a wave. You ever felt it? It's like our faith. Have you ever rested in Christ and let him carry you home? Do you know what it's like to be on the edge of his power and his presence? I'm pleading with you because I think the author of Hebrews is pleading with you. Stop drifting. 
don't you know how dangerous it is to act like our salvation doesn't matter? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I confess that as a preacher, these doctrines, these truths are too wonderful for me, and I imagine if Christ were here, you would be able to say it clearer or better. So forgive the messenger and keep us from getting this wrong. Keep us from putting faith in our efforts. Keep us from acting like it doesn't matter how we live out our faith. Help us to lean in and stop drifting. We desperately need your salvation again. In Jesus' name, amen.